0: Hey, welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction. More importantly, it's about recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley, back from vacation. You look tan. How was Cancun?
1: Uh, it was awesome. We went to we went to Cozumel, actually. Okay, just right off of Cancun. Uh, we had a great time. Uh, just it was just an adults, you know, no kids, just relaxed with friends. And
0: are you the uh, kind of guy that takes a book with him?
1: Yeah, I finished, uh, I finished an autobiography of Will Sargent, the guitarist for Echo and the Bunny Man. was very interesting. Uh, finished that. And now I'm working on Golf is Not a Game of Perfect, which
0: is written by a famous uh, sports psychologist. I played a little golf yesterday and they say golf is a game of missed shots. Mm, okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. And how good is your miss? Yeah, how good is your miss? How good is your miss? And and that's what it is. And another thing about golf is you've got to learn to play the course. Don't let the course play you.
1: you got to play your game on the course every time.
0: And you know what? It's funny you bring up golf because we didn't even plan on talking about golf. But golf can teach you so much. Mm-hmm. You spend four hours with a guy on a golf course. You can tell what kind of guy he is. You can tell how he gets when he gets mad. You can tell if he cheats. You can find out all all sorts of things is that's he
1: emotionally what- regulated does he have a plan is he organized yeah you can learn all those things about
0: a person for sure did you play golf down there in Cosmel?
1: no we didn't uh it turns out that there wasn't there we could have gone uh onto the mainland and played but there wasn't a course uh that i could find on the on the island but it was it was fun i was uh i was really into relaxing there you go so you know it was like uh eat tacos and Hang out by the beach
0: and that kind of stuff. Sometimes when you get back from vacation, you need a vacation. To- so that was my mistake.
1: I got back really late uh, two nights ago uh-huh. and had to be in the office seeing patients at 8 a.m. So I was a little tired, but
0: it was it was worth it. But you're here to do the podcast. And while you were out vacationing, you know, I was uh, just getting back on TV. Yeah, no big deal. You're just
1: becoming a, a, a television darling once again. Uh, you know what? It, it's People fr- are in love with you back on TV, by the way.
0: I've been overwhelmed. I've been overwhelmed. And, and, and the support has been amazing. You know what I mean? I thought for sure there'd be some people like, oh, we're giving this guy another shot. You know what I mean? But it, I haven't heard any of that. I, I haven't either. And it's I've been all reading been the possible. comments. People are like, they can't wait. They've been waiting for this. And I'm beyond grateful and so thankful for this opportunity. Uh, I said it on the last podcast. Unfortunately, when I left that job three years ago it was in handcuffs yeah you know and, and so to be able to get that call to come back and and, and do it uh again it, it's just well kudos to ksl for i think
1: uh you know seeing beyond the the situation that happened and and recognizing your talent and giving you another opportunity i think uh Wouldn't we all like to work for organizations that are forgiving and and are willing to see the big picture instead of getting caught down in the minutia of mistakes that people make? Well, I I think kudos to them. man.
0: Yeah, and and it's a wonderful company. It really is. I mean, from the beginning, remember, they kept me on. Uh, salary during my whole time at rehab.
1: I've told so many people that, and they cannot believe that yeah, they did and that. and
0: they could have just written me off. They could have pulled, pulled it. But they kept me on there. And they right. said, just get better. Um, you know, a lot of people are reading the post and going, why are you only doing this for a month? And I'll tell you my reasoning why I'm only doing it a month. Well, one, it's because me and KSL both agreed on a month. They wanted to see where my head was. I wanted to see where their head was. That was the first and foremost. The second was, I wanted another chance to do this. You know, and, and and I wanted to see if you I didn't want to go out. I didn't want to go out. You had such
1: a long career. Nobody wants to go out with a mistake being the reason that you stop. So yeah, that makes sense. You want and, to and, and
0: another it. big reason of why I wanted to do this again was to bring light to recovery and show mm-hmm. people that recovery is possible. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean that we can do amazing things and we're not doomed to live. In our mistakes. We can move on and you can get back what you lost. Not everyone's going to get exactly back what they lost, but you can get a better life if you work hard and put in the work.
1: Oh, and you know what I love about this and so many people who've come on our show to show where they're at in, in their recovery, just in life in general, is we can, we can maybe eliminate that shame factor finally, because shame, that's what kills recovery for so many people is they hang their head, they feel embarrassed, they feel ashamed of what they did, uh, they assume other people think the same, and they don't try for things. And I think we now live in a culture of addiction recovery where we're seeing that not only can a person say that was a big mistake, I own it, I'm healthy again, I'm ready to go back and have a better life. Um, but they can bring uh, positive change to the community. So many people, including yourself, uh, are giving back to the community, and I see way more of that from the addiction uh, recovery community than than the rest of us.
0: One thing we both agreed on in that meeting with me and KSL is that we get to talk about the podcast on their air. So it's going to bring more people over to this podcast and let them know the good things that we're doing here for our, over awesome. here on Project Recovery. So good. I'm grateful for that. Uh, I've been out and about in the public more so than I've ever been in the past three years. And people will come up to me and they'll go, Casey, what has sobriety given you? And I, somebody asked me that this morning. I was playing pickleball. And as I was driving uh, to the gym, because now I have to go later to the gym, so I'm not going to see that guy who wants to fight me.
1: I think that's that's a good thing. Yeah. Let, uh, let him
0: mellow a little. But here's what it, my thought on sobriety is, and, and I don't know if I read it somewhere or I made it up, uh, whatever it is, it, it rings true to me. This is what I've learned in sobriety. What I wanted, I had. What I needed, I didn't. And, and, th- and that's what sobriety has made me realize. That's insightful. The things that I wanted, I already had.
1: You went after him and you got him.
0: Yeah, and I was living a great life, and the th- things that I thought I needed—I needed to be on TV, I needed to be the funny guy, and all this other stuff—I didn't need that. Those were really wants. But but in my mind, it was switched you, yeah, around. Right, exactly. It was it was, right. it was switched around. I was putting the wrong energy in the wrong. Th- I was putting the right energy in the wrong things. If that makes sense, yeah.
1: It does, and it brought you a, a measure of success. Obviously, in fact, if you look at research on happiness, what actually causes real happiness? What are the factors? There, is, some of the research shows the difference between focusing on wants and understanding the difference between wants and needs. Mm-hmm. People who understand what a real need in their life is, you know, love, relationship, connection, purpose, uh, and they go after those things, they're the happiest people. But so many of us, like you were saying, we we think our wants—you know, the big house, flat, flashy car, big house—you know, all the fun stuff, toys—we think those are our needs, and that they'll bring us happiness. And that's like a dog chasing its tail. You never, ever, are going to end up satisfied. And so, the fact that it took you know losing the job in handcuffs to help you realize that now you are able to focus on true needs in your life.
0: You know, some of the happiest people are poor, and some of the most sure. miserable are rich. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Yeah. You know, and and and, and I think that comes down to needs versus wants, and knowing which is which. Yeah, I need and I want to do this show week in and week out, and it really helps me with my recovery. So, thank you once again to all of you who download this weekly. podcast. I think
1: some people are worried you might quit doing the podcast because no, you have the TV.
0: No, no, I back. You'll have to drag me away from this podcast. Uh, this is so vital to my recovery. It keeps me connected to a community that's given me so much. And and, and if I had to cho- choose right now, and, and 100% honest, they go, you can do the podcast or TV. I'd uh, Choose the podcast. Yeah. Because the podcast was always there for me, and it helped me through some very tough times.
1: Well, I'm glad to hear that because I love coming in and doing it with you, and I know Josh – He'll, he'll never leave us. Josh is going to stay with us forever, right, Josh?
0: No, he's going to be like that millennial <laughs> child that lives with you until you're 40. I know, until we have to kick him out. Yeah, it's like, hey, bro, <laughs> you know, I think it's time you get your own place. Yeah, we're, we're, we might have that talk soon. Hey, we're excited for the show today. Uh, he's an old friend of the show. This is the third time he's been in the studio. Right. But it'll be the first time he's been in the chair. To
1: to actually tell his story on the show.
0: Yep, his name is Frank Jameson. Uh He's the CEO, is that is that a correct title? Yeah, executive director, yeah. Of uh, SOAR, and we've had a lot of guests on this podcast from the SOAR program up in Ogden. That's from Which, Dustin Hawkins.
1: It's a fantastic program.
0: And uh, he's ready to tell his story. Before we get to your story, how long have you been sober? For four years. How many yeah. years were you in active addiction?
2: Uh, it's hard to say. A decade, more or less. Ten, yeah.
0: And we're going to find out more about Frank and his story. Stick around right here on KSL. Welcome back to Project Recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. He's a clinical psychologist. I never get old. It never gets old saying that. Really? Yeah, no, because I really like I would like to think that I'm a pretty popular character on this program, but you You are are adorned. Yeah, I mean, people well. love you. I mean, they do. They they, 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 because the great thing about you is that you, you speak our, our language. Speak like a dude. Yes, you know, <laughs> you know, you have these big dumb words that nobody understands, and after they leave your office, they're googling them all the way home.
1: Well, I'll take that as a compliment because, to be honest with you. Uh, I don't like those kind of uh, experts, you know, people that have to throw out the big words just to, to be experts. So I take that as a compliment. Thank in,
0: you. In the TV world, uh, they, they say kiss, and kiss means keep it simple, stupid. Right. You know what I mean? And when you go out and you do a presentation to somebody, you want to speak like you're speaking to a fifth grade audience. Well, I mean, you want to be understood, right? Otherwise, what's the point? Right. My favorite
1: professors all through graduate school were people that could explain things, complicated things in a simple, direct way. They didn't need to puff up their ego to use big words. But there are definitely those guys and gals out there. They're, they're out there. There's a ton of them. So I, thank you. I appreciate that.
0: Well, let's puff up his ego. We've got Frank Jameson here. He's the executive director of the SOAR program. Uh, we're going to find out what wonderful things happen at the SOAR program daily in just a bit. But where does the story of Frank Jameson begin?
2: Where does it all begin? Uh, well, um, before I get into that, I just want to take a moment to like recognize a, uh, a dear friend um, a brother, a son, a father who is an alumni of our program who passed away last night due to this disease of, of alcoholism. Um, oh. His name is Hunter, and he, uh, he died of liver failure in the ICU. So I went there. Dustin went there. Um, his girlfriend was there. Like many you know, friends and loved ones went to visit him. But it was just a visceral reminder of how serious this disease
0: is, right? You know, how life
2: and death it is.
0: Because, like, I have survivor's remorse somewhat of my addiction because my life seems to be going so well. And I can't sometimes understand why does my life get to work out? And then Hunter's doesn't, you know what I mean? And, 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 and it makes me, it makes me feel bad. I am grateful for what I have and don't, don't, don't misunderstand that, but there, not. Everybody gets out of this
1: man. And our, our, our thoughts, feelings, our hearts go out to Hunter's family and those that loved him. Um, and that's one of the the things about the show is we try to highlight what can happen mm-hmm. when a person embraces uh, sobriety and, and enters the world of recovery. But we do know that for various reasons, and and Casey, we don't always know what those are. Like sometimes it's biological factors, sometimes it's other factors. A lot of it's psychological and environmental. Uh, access to resources is a big one for people. Family, you community. know, yeah. The th- why why it it doesn't work out in the end for some people. Uh, All I can say is I just hope that the lives that Hunter touched will, and I'm sure they will be better off for having known him and having had him in, in their lives. And, um take some inspiration from him absolutely but that's where we're very sorry to hear uh, of that loss that's, yeah you know. i just i just wanted to mention it and kind of dedicate this well to i appreciate him you doing yeah. that because sometimes we 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 don't i mean that's not what this show is about necessarily but that but it's important for us to remind ourselves that this is a life or death disease
2: it's that's easy what it for is for me to forget that sometimes because These days I have so much fun in recovery with my friend group and, you know, my daughter and the things we do at SOAR and we're always out doing activities and a whole bunch of stuff and it's easy to sometimes forget that it is very serious and, and life and death and people need to take it as such. And yeah, the only way I can kind of wrap my head around it is, you know, it's kind of a more of a spiritual take, but you know, some people can't get sober here on earth and they need to go to God's rehab, you know? Is mm-hmm. Something Dustin Hawkins, you know, the founder of Source, said yesterday, and it really hit home to me. And I was like, that you know, that makes sense to me. I can buy that. You
0: know, sometimes the battle is just too big, yeah. and sometimes it's a war that you can't win, and it's sad. It, but it's a sobering reminder of what this fight is all about. Absolutely. Yeah. And so I, I love it. Let's dedicate this one to Hunter.
2: Yeah, thank you. I appreciate you guys taking the time to to recognize that. Um So anyways, yeah, once again, my name's Frank. Um, I'm the executive director of SOAR. Um, I guess my story begins when I was born, 1991. I'm 30 years old this year, which is kind of different.
1: <laughs> Whoa, what, yeah. what year did you graduate from high school, uh, Casey? 1992.
0: And <laughs> I was 90,
2: so I love it. <laughs> we're pretty old. I love it. My wife, on the other hand, thinks that I'm really old because I'm 30. I'm
0: like, you, you have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> you have no idea. Yeah.
2: Um, I, I was born in Los Angeles. Um, I grew up with just my mom. Um, she was a single mom uh, who raised me. Uh, my dad was never a part of my life. I've never met him. Um, he's since actually passed away, um, but we uh, we lived in the Los Angeles area for the first uh, six or seven years of my life, um, and it's kind of an interesting thing. I don't <laughs> I don't really know how to conceptualize this, but um, I know that when I was young, around six or seven, our neighbor was actually a big cocaine dealer, and he got a grenade thrown through his window, um, and it went off because of some. Dispute or whatever, and um, my mom's reaction was, "Screw this, we're moving to Idaho." You know, <laughs> <laughs> hmm. and we lived in a fairly nice neighborhood of L.A. You know probably fewer
1: grenades through windows in Idaho. Exactly, ah. yeah, fewer. I didn't say yeah, none. Fewer, I didn't say right. none.
2: Depends on where you're at in Idaho, but it's not like we lived in a bad area of L.A. It was, you know, pretty affluent and kind of tucked in the Hollywood Hills. But that's just how it went. And my mom's reaction was to, "We're getting out of L.A. and up to Idaho." So I, we moved to Sun Valley, Idaho um, when I was about seven years old. And um, looking back on it through retrospect, I'm, I'm like super glad I grew up there. It's a small mountain community. Um, for those of you that haven't been there, really similar to Park City or Aspen or something. Everyone loves the outdoors. It's really tight-knit. Um, but growing up, I didn't have as much appreciation for it. I kind of, you know, like resented it a little bit as like, my mom brought me out of California, you know, away from uh, my best friends and the ocean and like my other family members, aunts and uncles, cousins, this and that. Um, but, you know, I, I had a pretty good childhood. Um, no like trauma that i can think of
0: besides um, the grade the besides the
2: i didn't yeah. even i don't even remember it oh okay it's just you know that's what happened my mom told me like, family members tell me yeah it was a crazy story and sold the house blah 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 moved up to la but isn't um, it weird or that moved you moved up to sun valley but
0: it's weird that you don't remember the grenade yeah but you remember your mom taking you away from your friends yeah. your family yeah. the ocean you know what i mean yeah but, but that's what you're
1: tuned into you know that's early elementary school time right and mm-hmm. you're just starting to form, you know, real friendships, you know. Yeah. And uh, when you have to leave at that time, it's… Uh, it's traumatic. It's, it's upsetting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I'd definitely say I have emotional
2: uh, trauma for my childhood, just being raised by a single mom. There's no a father figure. Um, my mom was kind of up and down through a lot of um, my childhood and not always there emotionally, I think. Um, and I always had everything I needed, right um or wanted i don't know as the interesting discussion you got into early but i i always had food on the table and you know roof over my head and any toys i could play with she took me on awesome trips to you know from a young age to mexico and you know hawaii wherever you can name but i always feel like um she wasn't always like there as I felt like she should have been, I guess,
1: as a mom. Um, well, and she probably worked a lot. A lot yeah. of single parents uh, mm-hmm. feel that regret of trying to find that balance between working enough and being with your kids enough. I and don't, it was a first time thing
2: for her, too. Like there's no necessarily guidebook on how to be a parent,
0: right? Let alone a single figuring parent. figuring it out. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So you had a little uh, uh, emotional trauma, you say? Yeah.
2: Yeah. I didn't realize that even until much later on in life, the past few years. Um, but yeah, I would say so.
0: Do you, do you, but, you felt like growing up in Sun Valley, Idaho, you had a free range of the town? I mean, was there a lot of parental guidance of like, Hey, don't go here, go here. No, not necessarily.
2: It's a safe town. Um, me and my friends, you know, got into all sorts of trouble before, you know, we started down the path of drinking and, you know, smoking weed and drug use and that sort of stuff. We would, you know, shoot paintball guns at cars and- Small town and trouble, right? Exactly. Yeah. Small town Snowballs trouble. Snowballs at cars. Exactly. Yeah. Things like that. Blowing up mailboxes. Yeah. Yeah. All the don't fun stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Toilet paper in houses on Halloween.
0: But now you don't want to toilet paper houses because it's expensive. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That toilet paper. is. COVID toilet paper
2: You know what I mean? <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Um, I was about, I, I was in seventh grade, um, so about 13 years old, the first time I ever got drunk or smoked weed. Um, and it was impactful in my life. It wasn't this aha moment where I hear a lot of addicts and substance abusers kind of say, like, it changed their whole world, you know? And like, I finally felt like I could be in my own skin. And, it
0: was the missing ingredient. Exactly.
2: Um, it, I wouldn't say it was that, but it was definitely like, hmm this is fun. This is something that I want to be a part of my life, right? Um, it's what, you know, all the other kids are doing, the cool older high schoolers are doing. Um, and it definitely allowed me to, I guess, come out and play a little bit. I wasn't so nervous, you know, talking to girls or I feel, felt like I could tell jokes and, you know, I wasn't all worried about, Oh, what, what do I look like standing here? What what do I do with my hands? And oh, how does my hair look and what blah, blah, blah. Right. It just, that all kind of melted away. And I felt like I could be myself and relax and hang out and you know i guess be sociable
1: right i would say uh, a certain amount of that is typical for that 7th 8th grade right. junior high that's why junior high is tough is cuz we all become sort of self-conscious would you say you had more than the average anxiety for for a kid that age or do you feel like your anxieties and self-consciousness were kind of typical
2: i thought it was pretty typical i don't think it was necessarily more than you know, other kids, all I knew is, um, you know, what I liked to change my headspace from the first time I did it. You know, I got high, um, I smoked weed, I got drunk, and I was like, this is fun. And so it's something I'm going to keep pursuing, right? Um And, yeah, it helped with all that stuff, too. Um, But that wasn't – I wasn't, like, acutely aware of that at the time. I wasn't aware of necessarily the fact that, oh, I'm less anxious. But this is all kind of looking back on it. I think at the time I just realized, wow, this is cool. This is fun. All the other kids are doing it. I'm going to keep doing this,
0: right? And that seems pretty similar to my story. You know what I mean? It was just like – I think this is what we're supposed to do. And well, you weren't having a bad experience,
1: right? No, like you said, it no. was it was sociable, it was fun. Uh, at that age, I don't know if anybody remembers being thirteen, but the older kids, you just want to be like them, and so you if that's what they were doing, right. then you want to do it. So, Absolutely. yeah, I mean, I think I think a lot of people get uh, started down that path through. Instead of saying it was a really good experience, it's more like it wasn't bad. I had a good time.
2: Yeah. It kind of transformed over the next few years where, you know, by the time I was in high school, you know, ninth grade or so, it was um, definitely something that I would do and seek out every weekend. Um, you know, we'd be drinking and in Sun Valley, it's kind of something you do where you, you know, for, for the weekend, you go to a friend's party whose parents are chill or they're out of town or you drive up a Canyon and build a bonfire and drink beers and smoke weed and have a party. It was that kind of atmosphere, right? Really laid back. Um, and yeah, it was fun. It was something I would do every weekend and then. I noticed it was something that turned from, you know, something I would do for fun occasionally to more of a lifestyle. And it was a part of my identity and personality, right? Where, like, I'm the guy that smokes weed. I sell weed. If you need to have a good time, hit me up. I can hook you up with whatever you need. Like, I could get beer from, you know, older kids for whoever, you know. And I thought that was cool. And that was part it, of my identity. Like it's I interesting
0: said. that he says that because I think a lot of people – would say the same. It becomes an identity. And and I know it definitely did for me as well, is that, you know, yeah, I'm the fun guy. I'm the fun pig. I You know, this is what I do. Yeah. You know, when you see me, you know a party's about to happen because that's what I do. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, and,
1: and it, I think we've, you know, touched on it a little bit before, but I'm glad to use the word identity. It's that overlay of it's the natural time in life, you know, early to mid-adolescence is where you're uh, playing around with things to build an identity. Mm-hmm. Like that's now you can't avoid it everybody does it's its psychological development i i need to become somebody right so people develop their identity and then it's the overlay of opportunities that are presented to you so if you happen to be great at sports or school that might become part of your identity i'm
0: the athlete i'm the i'm the musician i'm the musician i'm the one into drama
1: yeah exactly or I'm the one that can always score for you. I'm the one that can set up the party. I'm the one that uh, everybody comes to. And it's it's a part of, like, it's a reputation. It's an identity. You feel, like you said, I could get stuff from the older kids, so I'm cool because I have those connections. Right. And, and everybody's building their identity at that time. And so a lot of people, that becomes their identity. Did you have a, other major identity sources? Were you a skier or yeah. anything like that?
2: And so looking back on it now too, it was sort of a chameleon where I could fit into any sort of situation I needed to be in and kind of feel at home. Right. And so, um, when I needed to put on the face of being a good student, you know, I could sit in front of the class and answer all the teachers questions and get straight A's and do all that. Um, I was, you know, snowboarded, I played tennis, um, did a lot of things. And, um, You know, it's, it's a small town. And so there's like not too, like everyone kind of knows everybody, but I could pretty much, you know, mesh in between friend group, friend groups seamlessly. And, um, that was part of my identity too, is being whoever you needed me to be, you know,
0: you're listening to Project Recovery. We're finding out more about Frank's party persona. We're going to see where (laughs) it leads him next. You're listening to Project Recovery. Welcome back to Project Recovery. All right, Frank, let's hear it. The party persona is taken over, but you're a chameleon. You can fit in with just about any friend group, but you don't come on this podcast uh, if it ends there.
2: No, it didn't end there. Um, well, throughout high school, it was interesting. I was on juvenile probation the entire time. I always looked at it like I got had bad luck. You know, small town cops have nothing better to do besides harass me. But I think the first time it was um, an open container of beer when I was. You know, in ninth grade. And then Did you ever was, get an MIP?
0: Yeah, minor possession. Mi- yep, yeah. I've had one of those.
1: An MIP, huh? Yep.
2: I had several of those. Minor in possession of alcohol, um, possession of weed, possession of paraphernalia. And it always seemed like right when I got off probation, or either right before I was about to get off, or like a week or two after I got off, I'd get hit again with something. You know, I'd get pulled over, and oh man, my car smells like weed, and they'd bring the dogs, and blah, blah, blah. So from ninth through twelfth grade, I was on juvenile probation. And my mom wasn't too happy about it, but it was almost like this feeling of, I'm not doing anything wrong. They're just harassing me because there's no real crime in Sun Valley, right?
0: You're playing the victim card. Exactly,
2: yeah. And um, I was able to kind of skate through, I guess, without my mom getting too mad at me because I did well in school. You know, I got straight A's throughout high school. Um, I ended up getting really high SAT scores. And um, it's funny, my senior year, the judge – or no, the prosecutor – um, wanted to, for my punishment, not let me leave the state of Idaho. And the judge kind of didn't listen to her. He's like, look, the best thing we can do for this kid is let him leave and go to college. And so luckily they did. They let me go to college. I ended up getting a full-ride scholarship to USC, University of Southern California, for wow. academics. Yeah. That's impressive. Very yeah. impressive. Yeah. Um, and I thought I had it made. I'm like, now I'm not in Sun Valley anymore. I'm free reign. I'm not under my mom's roof. I'm back in California. I'm back in California. Um, and so I you know, had an apartment and started going to school and it um things went downhill pretty fast. Um the first time I went to rehab I was I was doing <laughs> ecstasy multiple times a week for a few months straight. Um yeah, I was just into the party scene down there, going to concerts, going to raves, that sort of thing.
0: So I I I'm not familiar with ecstasy that well. Um what I'm saying is that doing it multiple times a week is it took a very physical toll on me. Um
2: basically I thought it was all fun and games every time I went out to party I'd take ecstasy cuz you know for those of you that are unfamiliar it's just so it's a party drug. It's very aptly named. You feel ecstatic. You feel really happy. Oh this is great. This is the best table in the world. Oh I love you Casey. You're the best. You're my best friend and that kind of thing, right? This music's amazing and I so I loved it, right? I did it all the time. I sold it. Um And after a few months of that, I was depressed, (laughs) right? I, my brain was all out of dopamine and serotonin. I was like, I wonder why I'm depressed. Um, and it actually got so bad that, um, I tried to commit suicide. Um, this is a really heavy story that I, I really don't, I haven't shared it with a whole lot of people. Um, but I was visiting my mom, um, for Christmas break and, uh, from school and, um, I, I didn't see a way out. I didn't feel like myself. I felt like I couldn't connect to the old me. I didn't know who I was. I couldn't connect to my friends. I was in a deep depression, and um, I didn't really make the connection that it was you know, caused by taking ecstasy this often. Um, all I knew is like, I didn't feel good. I was in a slump. I didn't know how to get out of it. Um, I ended up getting a handgun, and I was all feeling sorry for myself. I put on you know, sad Neil Young songs. I was drinking whiskey, and I decided I was going to end my life. Um, I put it to my head, and I closed my eyes, and I pulled the trigger, and I just heard a click and it was still to this day um probably the heaviest moment of my life. I immediately felt this rush of emotions, I started shaking um I started crying, I started seeing memories flash before my eyes of basically just people's faces that I care about friends, family, my mom, my cousins um and I was shaking I didn't know what happened i I open the chamber and out pops this bullet. And there's a bullet that like the firing pin had hit the primer and the bullet didn't go off. Whoa. Oh, and I don't even know what the chances of that are, but it's incredibly rare. And I just, I broke down. I woke up, my mom, it was probably three in the morning with a handgun in my hand, tears streaming down my face. I was like, I need help. And uh, she sends me to rehab, right? <laughs> so that was a very dramatic way for me to enter my first rehab. Um, I was still 18, no, 19 years old. I just turned 19. Um, and over the course of spending 30 days in rehab, um, I was sleeping regularly, eating right, you know, no drugs or alcohol in my system, and I started feeling normal again.
0: And and, and, and that's the goal of a rehab. Right. You know, you know, 30 to 45 days, proving to yourself that you're not going to die without this alcohol or drugs. Uh, you, you start to work out. You talk to a therapist. You, right. You're around like-minded people. You start to find your community. Yeah. And so, I mean, rehab, like I tell people all the time, if you can get 30 to 45 days in rehab without an addiction, take it Exactly. because it, <laughs> <It's> abs- <great. laughs> it is absolutely amazing. It really is a time to work on yourself. Yeah. And so you felt like you, you you were becoming your old self again.
2: Yeah. And I never thought
0: that drugs and alcohol
2: were the problem. I, when I was there, I was here for my depression and yeah, they're kind of caused by drugs and alcohol. They're, they're wrapped up into the whole issue, but I'm the problem right in between my ears is the problem. So when I started feeling back to myself again, I was like, I'm fixed. There is no problem anymore. Um, And I remember about two weeks after I got out of rehab, I was at a party with some friends and my friend had a a benzo. I think it was like a lorazepam, right? Similar to Xanax or Valium, something like that. Mm -hmm. I remember I took it at the party and I immediately felt even more like back to myself again. And I I remember (laughs) vividly thinking, this is it. This is a... Drugs aren't the problem; they're the solution. I was like, this pill like makes me feel great again—the opposite of how I felt when I was depressed and lonely and wanted to kill myself. And I'm like, so they were wrong at rehab. Drugs weren't the problem; like they're like all I need to do is take one of these every day, and I'll be uh, great. That was what my thinking was, and I didn't see that that was indicative of a drug use problem. I thought uh, it was but, the opposite. But
0: you can see how someone would make that connection.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I think it it comes back a lot to. We're not educated enough yeah. uh, coming through high school to about things like neurochemicals and how our brains affect our moods. So, for example, the, the psychiatric medications that are designed to treat depression uh, affect those two neurochemicals often that you mentioned, norepine, norepinephrine is one, but serotonin and dopamine. Yeah. Ecstasy uses those all up. So a lot of people are born without having proper amounts of those in their system. And the medications help them. Uh, You could see how, though, you didn't make that connection because you didn't have that real education about the fact that, hey, buddy, you had enough of those chemicals. You just burned them all up with your ecstasy use. And then uh, real depression sets in, and it's hard to get that back. And then you take something like a benzodiazepine, and boom, you're feeling you know, amazing. The problem is, uh, as you know, uh, you take one benzo and it's amazing and then you take the next one and it's less and then it's less and then pretty soon it flips on its head and you need them just to feel normal.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah. I didn't start experiencing that until a few years later in terms of taking the drugs just to feel normal. But I guess, you know, I went back to college after rehab. I had taken, you know, a little medical hiatus. Um, And the next two years were okay. I did my freshman year and sophomore year in college. Um, And I was a heavy partier. Again, I was a chameleon. And that it was part of my addiction, too, like feeling like I could fit in anywhere. And it, it escalated from just the friend groups in high school to like the L.A. atmosphere. So and the day I could be in class and you know talk to the professors, then I could chop it up with the dean of the USC Law School, and then I could talk to the girl at Starbucks. Then I could go to a frat party and talk to girls there, and then the next day I could go into the middle of the hood and talk to you know real gangbangers and get drugs from them so i could sell them on campus and i could really fit in anywhere um and i just again my identity was a big partier um you know big drug user big you know drug distributor or so i thought i thought thought i was freaking el chapo but (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah and on the inside i guess looking back i was just scared i didn't really know who i was but i knew i could be whoever you wanted me to be and Kind of felt like I could put on a show for the people at school,
1: and so you were relying on breadth of personality, not depth of personality, yeah, right? Yeah, and and I think that happens a lot to people where, um, you know, they kind of get caught up in feeling like I can be whoever I need to be in a particular situation, but that leaves you superficial. Oh, absolutely. Right? And so when, at the end of the day, when you're by yourself and you reflect on who you are. There, there isn't the depth that you want there to be. And so you become in conflict with how you feel about yourself. And it goes back and start up that whole process again of self-loathing and hatred and depression. Absolutely. And pretty soon the bottom kind of fell out.
2: And I, I I was spending much, much less time in the school version of Frank and much more time in the you know drugs and partying kind of thing. Even so much so that my friends that were all in fraternities and stuff were like, we're worried about you. I'm like, what do you mean? And they're like, well, we still managed to go to class and do this. And for me, that was starting to become a very minimal
1: part of my life. I thought it should be a red flag if the frat guys are yeah. worried about you, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I
2: thought I was smart enough I could skate by and still do well in classes. Um, and I kind of was. I my grades had maybe dropped to Bs for maze, but I was like, I can still manage this. And then it all came to a head. It was my uh, the end of my spring semester of my sophomore year. I ended up failing every single class due to the fact that I didn't show up to my finals. I was in a week long blackout period. Um, I vividly remember this moment where I kind of, I don't know where I was. I blacked in because my phone is like buzzing. This alarm's going off in my phone. I kind of, you know, get it out of my pocket. I look at it and it's a, you know, alert that I have a um, anthropology final in an hour and I, I get a load of my bearings and I'm nowhere near campus. I'm you know, in the middle of the hood in LA, for those that are familiar with LA geography, I'm on like, you know, 80th street in Hoover, 80th in Vermont, you know, miles south of USC in, in the hood. And I had no idea how I got there. And there's people that are, I'm on a couch on a lawn. Um, and there's people, it's a crack house. People are running drugs out of this house and I'm spilling a beer on my, on my chest. And I have no idea, like no recollection of who anyone is or how I ended up there. And then people are kind of joking with me and they called me effed up Frank. (laughs) And they thought it was so funny that I was there. And like, you remember last night? I'm like, no, like, I don't know. how, And I didn't have my wallet. I didn't have my car keys. I ended up walking miles, probably, you know, 10 miles or so back to school. Needless to say, I missed that final. And I was so ashamed of missing that final that I kept the blackout going, kept partying and didn't show up to any of my other finals. Um, and as you know, in college, the finals, like 50% of your grade. So due to that, I ended up failing all my classes.
0: Did you ever find your car?
2: Yeah, it was back (laughs) at school. (laughs) Um, and, um, basically two weeks later, I ended up in the middle of LA County jail for, you know, drug possession charges. My mom finds out, um, and then she gets a letter from the school saying that I lost my scholarship and that I failed all my classes. And then that's when I kind of go to rehab for the second time. Um, and, you know, I could kind of like draw this story out for a long time. But basically the, ne- the next time I went to rehab, it was uh, the next four to five years of my life were a series of kind of going to rehabs. I'd get sober and I would kind of build up some sort of semblance of a life. I'd get a job, get back into school, um, get an apartment, get a girlfriend. Something would happen. I'd relapse and I'd start the cycle all over again.
0: So in total, how many rehabs have you been to?
2: To about six inpatient rehabs. Um, and then it kept getting worse every time. Um, what it looked like, the drug use, and it would keep escalating. It was always a series of lines, you know, I thought I'd never cross. And then, you know, I crossed them, right? And so this transition into how it became part of my life was so interesting. Like I said, when I was a kid in high school, it was something that I would do for fun. And it became a personality, a lifestyle, part of my identity. And by now, like it was a means of survival. Like I needed the drugs to survive. And by now I was doing, you know, heroin. Um, And once I kind of hit heroin, there was no turning back. I wasn't any interested
0: in weed or things like that anymore. Cocaine. It was just that. Can I ask you how, if you remember... When you cross that line of heroin, because I'm sure in your mind, you said, I will never do this. I will never shoot up heroin. I will never do this. Yeah. Do you remember the time that you crossed that line? I do. Um,
2: I had just basically left a detox. You know, it was one of the times I was like, all right, it's time for me to get sober again. I was day two in a detox facility. Someone comes in and we kind of are feeding off each other's war stories. And, oh, this is so fun. I used to do this. I used to sell these, blah, 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 blah. And then finally we amped each other up so much. We're like, let's get out of here go get high. And so we hopped over the fence and, you know, started on a, a bender basically. Um And, yeah, we got some heroin. I would only been smoking it at the time, which even that is something I never thought I would do. Mm-hmm. um But, you know, he had some needles, and he's like, you know, do you want to shoot up? And I just – it didn't even cross my mind. I was like, yeah, it's probably time. You know, I'm wasting it by smoking it, not getting high enough. And so I shot up, and that was that. And then all of a sudden from then on out, you know, I was an IV heroin user. Um, That's a game changer. Yeah. It, it, it was a total game changer. And – I just – my life kept getting more and more unrecognizable from, you know, the high school me who was you know, smart and into sports. And, yeah, I was a partier, but, you know, I was well-liked and I was, you know – I felt like a good kid, right? And then I got a full-ride academic scholarship to a nice university and then now I'm like shooting heroin and – With a guy you met in detox, behind the the fence. Exactly, exactly. Um, And I'd been through this so many times. Um, There's one quick anecdote or little story I'd like to tell is – I the longest I put sober together um, in those four or five years um, after my second rehab was about nine months. I had about nine months sober, um, and things were going great. I was going to University of California Irvine. I had a job. I had a girlfriend. I had an apartment. And my girlfriend and I at the time we went to a Red Robin, and things were going so well. And the frou frou drinks that the waitresses were carrying looked so good. I was like, "Should we have one?" And she's like, "You know, yeah, why not? How can it? It won't hurt." And I had a drink. Um, we had a few. But I didn't wake up the next day in jail or behind a dumpster or whatever. I woke up the next day, went to work, went to school. Everything was fine. I was like, I'm, I can drink. Well, three weeks later, I was doing heroin and meth every day. And it was like a really fast learning lesson that I can't do anything at all.
0: Um, Created that downward spiral pretty yeah, quickly. Like I said,
2: things got it kept getting worse and
0: worse. And my downward spiral started happening faster and faster. And the whole time you're going in and out of rehab, what is your mom saying to you?
2: She was there. She was trying to be supportive, but you know, she was kind of at a loss of what to do. She had at that time been to a lot of Al-Anon meetings, token, spoken to a lot of professionals who kind of taught her not to enable me and kind of taught her the tough love, um, which really I think helped me. Without that, you know, I don't know how what my story would have looked like, but. Um, <clears throat>
0: But she did some research. She got some education. She did. Yeah. And I and I think that's a valuable lesson for all our listeners that, you know, that although the addict is going through it and you don't know where to turn, there are places like Al-Anon. There are places like Sure. Call them and they'll, they'll tell you, you yeah. know what I mean, and, and they'll walk you through. They can't tell you what to do because they don't have any skin in the game, but they can tell you what science and what, you know, what, what works. But they'll
1: tell you what typically works and it, it reinforces your mom's a good example of somebody that embraced the fact – that it's a family disease. It and is. She needed help and she needed support. It wasn't all Frank's fault. It wasn't Frank's problem. Yeah. And that is one of the most, I think, healing things. It's just that attitude shift where families, when they can embrace the fact that I may not be the one taking the drug, but it, my my loved one, my family member, so I'm going to go to Al-Anon or I'm going to go to SOAR. I'm going to get the help that I need because I'm part of this. And I'm sure you're right that your story has turned out better than if uh, she had just enabled you and blamed you and that sort of thing. Exactly.
0: So what does rock bottom for Frank Jameson look like?
2: Well, um, my insurance. Funny enough, I had been going to too many rehabs, and they stopped paying out for um, treatment centers in the state of California. And I don't know how the policy works with Regents, but they were basically, you know, I talked to someone, and they did my. Verify, verification of benefits and they're like, there's, they could still send you to rehab in Utah and regents would pay for it. So I basically got on a plane, um, with a interventionist and we came up to Utah and I went to a, to treatment up here. Um, and I didn't stay sober. <laughs> so I ended up meeting a girl in treatment. Um, great, highly recommend it. Uh, <laughs> we thought it was going to be happily ever after. And, you know, we left rehab together and pretty soon we were living in my truck, you know, homeless on the streets of salt Lake. Um And so for the next year of my life, basically all of 2017, I was living in Salt Lake. When we came up on some money, we'd be living in the good life in a Motel 6. But for most of it, it was, you know, living in the back of my truck um, in, under a camper shell, like in a Walmart parking lot or a parking garage. And we were doing what we needed to do to survive. You know, we were selling drugs. We were stealing. And again, there's another line I thought I'd never cross, you know, from doing the heroin to doing the IV heroin. Well, I was like, I'm never going to steal. Well, I started stealing from, you know, you name it, Target, Walmart, Home Depot, running little scams, fraud, hustles. And then I was like, but I'm definitely never going to steal from a person. Well, you know, towards the end of that, I was breaking into freaking houses in nice neighborhoods when it seems like, you know, the husband and wife were at work and I'd break into the house and steal valuables, jewelry, freaking a laptop. And I was just so far gone from my moral compass and who I thought I was um, that I was just resigned to the fact like, this is my life. I'm not going to get better. I've been to too many rehabs. I haven't talked to my family, my mom in months. They've cut me off long ago. I'm like I'm either gonna die a junkie or I'm gonna go to prison or even worse I'm gonna live this way for another few decades. You know I didn't think there was any hope for me. I was too far gone. Um, at a certain point, I almost lost my foot due to IV heroin use. Um, I had injected in my foot. I missed a vein. I should have gone to the hospital immediately. It started swelling up, turning red. But I waited five days, of course, and. I walked into a ER room in South Jordan, and there was, there was like 15 people in the ER room. The nurse took one look at my foot and wheeled me back in front of, in front of all those people, and she's like, "We need to, we need to get you in surgery like yesterday." And so, um, I didn't realize how dire it was, but they called a you know their emergency orthopedic surgeon. He came in, and the first thing he says is like, "I'm going to do my best to try to save the foot." And I didn't know I was in danger of losing it. I was like, "Can't you just give me some antibiotics and drain it?" And he's like, "We're past that. You know, this is." Septic you know you this could spread to your heart like you could die, you know we need to amputate the foot, but I'll try to save it. Um, I started freaking out and thrashing and screaming nonsense about how i'm going to sue this hospital if I lose my foot blah 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 and um anyways, they give me a shot to calm me down, and then I next thing I know, I woke up from surgery, and I still had my foot, but uh, I was in that hospital for seventeen days. Um, And I had five surgeries on it um, to save the foot. And uh, I have it today. I still have really pretty bad scarring, but I have full use of it, um, full strength, mobility. It was was pretty miraculous. Um, But it was crazy. Even in the hospital, I had like a stint, right? And I was using it to shoot up heroin. I was still having my girlfriend at the time bring me in heroin. Into the hospital. Yeah, because the morphine- Through the stint that they they were giving me wasn't enough. Like they were giving me high doses of- um, you know, dilaudid and morphine and all the good hospital drugs. But I was such a bad opiate addict that it wasn't enough. Wow! I, it's, I would still like it would be cool for thirty seconds. I'd feel a little rush, and then I'd be like, I need to get high. Like I'm still like going through withdrawals, kind
0: of. That's s- a first. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is. Yeah. And so your girlfriend was sneaking in heroin.
2: Yeah, and I was using like the IV stint that they gave me in my chest to shoot it up.
0: Um, That's unbelievable. <laughs> that is unbelievable. Crazy. um, Wow. So after 17 days, they set you free. Where do you go? They
2: set me free, and um, I freaking go back to living in my truck and doing this over and over again. Um, So
0: you went back to – what what put you there?
2: I remember it was about – it was like February of 2018, and there's snow in Salt Lake. And I I remember just being on crutches. I'd have a – what did they call it? It was um, like a vacuum, like a wound vac on my foot. And I'd have this – everything would be in a brace and all bandaged up in a wound vac, like sucking fluids out to this little pouch. And I'd be on crutches like going to find my dealer, you know, like wow. – Wow. And, um, I you know, maybe give it a few weeks. My girlfriend at the time ends up getting arrested for petty theft charges. I think she was stealing clothes from Ross or something like that. And I remember one night I was in my truck in a parking lot. I had no gas, um, so I couldn't go anywhere. I couldn't turn it on to get heat. I had no heroin. I had no money, and by this point I had negative money. I had like I owed diff- various financial institutions thousands of dollars. I was in debt like fifteen thousand to Bank of America, Wells Fargo, my loan company for my vehicle, all this stuff. Um, anyways, no girlfriend, no gas, no heroin. It was snowing sideways, and I just started crying in in my car. Um, and I called one of the only people I knew that was living in Salt Lake at the time that wasn't living this, you know, junkie criminal lifestyle. He actually worked at a, I think it was Wasatch at the time recovery center. Um, his name's Don Coleman. I called him, um, and I was just crying. I was like, I need help, you know? Um, anyways, he, he gets me into a detox facility and I was like, the last time I ever used was, uh, my sobriety dates April 10th of 2018. Um. And something was different this time. And I've, I try to explain this. Basically, every other time in the past I'd gone to rehab or tried to get sober before, it was like unwillingly, it was like due to the lack of like options. I was like, I guess I better try this and get sober. And but there was still a yearning to get high. It was still like, I never get to smoke weed again. Nah, that sucks. I never get to drink alcohol again. That sucks. Like I never get to get high again, you know, pop a pill like that's a bummer. But I guess I'll try the sobriety thing because you know, it's worked out for me before. It seems like a good path. Anyways, this time my mindset was like, I don't ever have to get high again. And it was a relief as opposed to like a feeling of missing out or a yearning to you know drink or use someday. And that was a – I don't know. It wasn't anything I did on my part to like achieve that mindset. It was a gift that was just given to
1: me of just being done. Um, sick and tired of being sick and tired. Yeah, exactly. Well, um, it sounds like you crossed that line from – you know, drugs and alcohol being some sort of uh, good time or alleviation of pain to a burden. Yeah. It was it had, just a burden.
2: It had crossed that line like a while before that. I just
1: didn't. But that's that's For the interesting reason, thing. Didn't. Like we talk about rock bottom on yeah. the show a lot, right? And you're kind of describing a rock bottom. And I've come to believe that we usually think of rock bottom as associated with a, a big event. And, and you just described yours in the truck, you know, and, uh, but the reality is i think rock bottom is really more a state of mind it's when your mind shifts and you no longer want that anymore you want the freedom that you used to have right. you know it's a shift like this is a burden to me this is holding me back i i i please take it away from me and i know that, that there are temporary shifts like that that people have when they're desperate but when it really shifts Often that is, correlates with a big event, but not always, not mm-hmm. Not always for people, but it's that mindset shift
0: that that makes all the difference. I like that you said it was a gift. Yeah. So you go into this detox.
2: And I, I like what you said just for a second. I, I've met people who's, who, whose rock bottoms have been like, my wife told me she's worried about my drinking. And then that's enough for them to be like, I right. need to change. And for some people, you know, like me, you have to go through jail and homelessness and losing your foot almost and all this. But, you know, it's it's personal for everyone. And it's just how far do you want to go? You know, when are you finished? And I, I like that. It's, it's more of a mental thing and a personal thing than what your outside circumstances look like.
0: Yeah. So after the detox,
2: you end up, do you go into another treatment facility? Yeah, so I spend about a week in detox, and then that's when I'm introduced to Dustin Hawkins. Um, My buddy Don says, I know this guy that runs a program up in Ogden, and it's kind of, you know, outside the box. You know, I'm like, because me, I'd been to six inpatients, an equal number of IOPs, you know, an equal number of jail stints in, you know, three states and seven counties, like, you know. I've been through the ringer and, you know... the. You whole, did the world tour. Exactly, yeah. As I've been through you're like, what more can you help me with? And anyways, he's like, I know this guy, Dustin Hawkins. He runs a program called WAR, At Addiction Recovery. It's kind of outside the box, you know, IOP type thing up in Ogden, and I gave it a shot. Um, and it was a great program for me. Coupled with the fact of what I just said, I was done. So I was like willing to do what it took to get sober. I think in the past, I still... I would take bits and pieces, but for the most part, still do what I wanted to do. You know, if something didn't jive with Frank's way or what I wanted, I would be like, I don't need to do that. And this time, if, you know, my Dustin or Donna told me like, to get sober, you need to put your head in the toilet bowl for 10 minutes a day. I would have done it. You know, like I'm done. Just tell me what to do. Um, And so that mindset of just being willing to to kind of follow direction and do what's needed to maintain and achieve long-term sobriety was really helpful. Uh, But the program, um, they just brought me into the fold. is this cool community of people that – Primary focus of it is uh, is health, right? So there's fitness, uh, working out in a gym, going on hikes, um, learning how to eat better. The nutrition piece was huge because when I first got sober, sure I was off you know heroin and methamphetamine, but you know a typical diet in the day of Frank would look like I'd wake up and you know detox or sober living and smoke a cigarette. I'd have a rock star, or a monster, and eat a donut, smoke another cigarette, and then by noon I'm like I don't feel so good, and it's like well, yeah, I wonder why. <laughs> You know? So you know, nutrition for me was like really easy to to you know start making progress on you know eating three meals a day, three snacks a day, focusing on getting all your macros, protein, fats, carbs, and things like that. I think early on in my sobriety helped kind of reestablish. Um, it's a key
0: pillar like, in sobriety. Yeah, I mean it really is. Well,
1: and you'd done so much damage for those years to how your body functions, your okay. neurochemicals and its ability to function. People don't realize that those those are limited resources. Right. Our brain's job is to keep us alive, but our brain operates on limited resources. And when we do things that deplete those resources, it can get really scary. And it takes a while mm-hmm. uh, of good health and nutrition to start to replenish those resources. So that's... Uh, yeah, I. That's one of my very favorite things about about sore. No, oh, thank you.
2: Yeah. I think it's just it's important, right? Um, and it you know resets your hormones, gets you feeling like you again, right? Um, faster than you know if I would have not done heroin, but just kept drinking rock stars and smoking cigarettes and eating donuts. Those and, things
0: deplete your yeah. your resources as well. Exactly. Yeah. So how does yeah. one go from a client of a program to the executive director? <laughs>
2: Well, um, so in conjunction with uh, doing the program, I also got heavily involved in, you know, uh, the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. I got a sponsor, went through those steps and, you know, just really did the whole thing, gave it my all. Uh, but with Dustin, I um, we just became best friends. I graduated the program. Um, at the time, he was partnered with another treatment center in Layton um, You know, he ended up pulling back and just going back to just a nonprofit organization. He didn't like the way things were being run necessarily. And at that point in his life, he was like, you know, kind of scared at a crossroads, not sure what to do. I was um, coming up on a year sober, not even a year sober at the time, probably nine months sober. And we were hanging out one day um, and he's like, can you help me with this? And I was like, yeah, you know, let's do it. And we kind of, you know, took the bull by the horns and just, you know, created our, our a, a cool little program out of it. Um, we since changed the name from War to Soar, which stands for School of Addiction Recovery. Um, and the mindset behind that branding is like it's a school, right? So I earned my PhD on the streets in in meth, and I earned my masters in heroin, right? Um, and like. What, like instead of that being a black mark or a taboo, that's like the most valuable resource I can have now because now I can use my experience in going through that and not only going through that but how I got out of that to then help others. And so I was enrolled in the School of Addiction and now I'm enrolled in the School of Addiction Recovery, right? And I think that's a cool idea
0: and we, I use my experience to try to help others. And the great thing about SOAR uh, is is you guys do so much for the community, but not just addicts. I mean, you work a lot with the youth. And, uh, yeah. I mean, you guys do amazing programs and people who aren't even addicts. Like, I know a lot of people up in that area that aren't addicts, but they come and work out with you guys. Absolutely. I, you know, and just for the community. And you have built a wonderful community up there where people feel at home and feel safe and can come back. We've had multiple people on the podcast who have gone – you know, back out into the streets and then came back and still welcomed
2: back. Absolutely. Yeah. I had my fair share of relapses. So we definitely understand that. We'll try to help you through it. But yeah, I appreciate you saying that. It it means a lot to me. And we've, you know, since expanded our programs to be able to help a wider variety of people. And Um, you know, we, at first it was adults and then, um, you know, people started asking us about like their teenage kid. And then, so we were working with kids and then, you know, before I hopped on board, um, Dustin had started this thing in 2010, but for the majority of its, you know, the first eight years or so, it was kind of like him one-on-one mentoring someone. Right. And so he had a lot of experience with a lot of different people, but through growing the program, changing the brand. We moved into a new building. We like, you know, re looked at the youth program and now we have two different youth programs. One's kind of preventative, you know, um, just the idea of teaching kids, um, how to build a healthy foundation and how to have positive coping skills and youth empowerment and things like that. Um, and it's cool because we lead them through group workouts um, they you know achieve it together get done sweating together they're smiling high five and then we circle up for 10 15 minutes and basically talk about the same things that we talk about to our adult clients you just are pitching it at 10 12 year olds you know and those groups are really cool um, and our other youth program is uh, for kids that are kind of on the, of, on the front end of, of problems you know either substance abuse problematic behavior or like you said just Kids these days are struggling. Anxiety, depression, the phones, the video games—you name it. I mean, bullying, bullying—all sorts of stuff. Um, and it's—it's it's, things are really hard for youth these days. Um, I feel like there's a lot of a lot more kids that seem to struggle um, than kids when I was, um, you know, in high school. And I'm not sure if that's true or not, but I feel like it is. I mean, I've heard that one in four youths in Clark County, Nevada, Las Vegas, or have considered suicide. You know. One in four junior high kids. It was. That's a big percentage, right? And uh, it just seems to be getting worse and worse. And, you know, you could blame a lot of things, you know, whether it's uh, social media, the age of the phone, the internet, whatever it is, you know, it's, kids need help. And they need, um, you know, important and positive coping skills and how to build their lives, like I keep saying, on a foundation of health. <clears throat> when I say health, I don't just mean the fitness, right, or the nutrition and eating right. It's uh, emotional health, um, you know, mental health, spiritual health. And then finally, how do you balance that to make a life? What does that all look like? You know, and it's a little bit different for everyone. But we've, you know, got tried and true methods that work um, that we fully believe in and have helped you know hundreds of people. So it's it's pretty cool, and I'm grateful to to do what I do today.
0: Well, Frank's uh, almost four years sober. He's the father, almost, just over four, yeah. just over four, father of what two.
2: Yeah. One and a half. So I'm, I'm since married. I have a, a daughter who's a year and a half. She just turned 18 months, beautiful little girl. And we have another one on the way, a baby boy coming this summer. Um, oh, thank you. congratulations. That's awesome. It's amazing. I just looking at where I've come since, you know, four year, four or five years ago, it's not even recognizable. You know, I wasn't one of those guys that was like, Oh, I'm a functional alcoholic. I was, I had no semblance of a life, right? I was stealing. I was robbing to support my habit. I was you know, almost had my foot amputated, living in my truck. And then now it's, you know, I run a nonprofit um, addiction recovery program for youth and for adults. And I uh, have a family and I'm married and have kids. And it's it's so cool. There's not a day I don't, you know, at some point throughout the day, like think about it and be filled with, with pure, deep gratitude
0: for, for where I've come. That's amazing. I think that's a perfect way to end this podcast. Dr. Matt, any thoughts on the story of Frank Jameson?
1: Uh, well, I could talk to him for another hour or two easily. <laughs> he's um, awesome. Oh yeah. He's great. And thank you for coming in. Oh, thank you. Presenting your story in such a, a, cogent way that we can follow what happened. One of the things I want to point out, two things. I have two, two final thoughts, Casey. One is you said something that was so, it, it made my heart sick because I think this is one of the things that hurts people so much. And then I have another thing that's positive, but you know, when you said you jumped the fence, And the, the friend offered you to, to shoot up for the first time. Mm -hmm. And you said kind of like, well, I guess I might, you know, this is where I'm at. I guess this is what's next. Mm -hmm. To me, the reason that's such a sad statement is because it's so common and indicates the destruction of the self of the person. You're just like, well, I guess that's where I'm at now. Like there's, you've given up and given in and you don't feel, like you said, you weren't a functional alcoholic. You, You had no life. It had taken that morality of who you felt you were away. I had no barometer or compass
2: except the drugs. Yeah, I guess this is
1: where I'm at now. I guess this is where I'm going. And what a sad comment that is. But I think many people listening probably have felt that way in different Mm -hmm. ways in their life. Then to be able to look at where you're at now and you don't know this but i've referred a couple people that i work with to your program who have had wonderful experiences there and the main reason it, it's not the nutrition although i love that part of the program it's not the exercise uh, that i love that part of the program it's not the community service but i love that part of the program it's the, the it's the environment of optimism that right there to me is the most powerful thing that's why kids teenagers want to be there it's that power of positivity when you feel optimism in a community you can do anything and i appreciate you guys for for making that happen thank you so much i really appreciate
0: that and the thing i love about frank is once again you are proof that recovery is possible and so you're are do- you. And, well, and, and I'm grateful for it every single day. And a lot of times I look back on my life like you did and I go, I can't believe that was me. Mm-hmm. And I can't believe this is me because I didn't see those two ever connecting. I really didn't. I, right. was, like, I was like, OK, this is it. And, and I said the same thing that you did to heroin. And when I when I was done, I was like, well, I guess this is it now. So we'll see what this looks like, mm-hmm. because I didn't think I'd ever be able to get it back. But my life is 100% better than it ever, ever was. So thank you for stopping by. And the SOAR program, you can find it up in Ogden. Project Recovery is a what, Dr. Matt?
1: It's a KSL podcast. Giddy up.